Okay. So, wait for the last few people to come in. That's good. So, as I did uh, promise last night, uh, some people did ask for some deeper talks. And even if it may be a bit too deep for you, I try and make sure it's very well explained. And this is one of those similes which I have used for many years and also developed and found it can be very helpful in several areas in one's meditation practice. But to open up the talk, you may know that very often I focus on some of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, the only way to enlightenment, as the Buddha said, and that the factor which I've often emphasized was the second factor of the Eightfold Path. And that second factor, many of you might know, is called Samasankapa. Usually, actually it's many different translations have been used for that term. Anything from right thought to right intention. But as far as I'm concerned, when I studied the monks Vinaya, and I realized that there was a difference between intention and motivation. Motivation is where you're coming from. Intention is where you're going to. And apparently when I discussed that with some people who had a legal background, that is very um, well established in legal systems. Where did you want to go? What was your intention? Where did you want this to proceed? But also, where did it come from? What was the motive behind this? And when you look at Samasankapa and its definition by the Buddha, the three right intentions, or right motivations, what I would like to call it, are coming from renunciation, letting go nekama, and coming from avayapada, which in Pali is always a synonym for metta, for loving kindness, and from ahingsaka. And ahingsaka became well known in the English language by Mahatma Gandhi, means uh, non-violence. So often those three terms become sort of letting go, kindness and gentleness. And it was important for me to find those terms because a lot of the time when I was reading the suttas, I was really looking for the place where kindness is mentioned by the Buddha. As a Westerner, it was one of the most important parts of Buddhism. In fact, it was compassionate and kind. And then when I looked at the Eightfold Path in most translations, there was no mention of kindness at all. And so that was one of the reasons why that I was relieved. When you study more deeply and read the Pali, then you see that that kindness is in the second fact of the Eightfold Path where you're coming from. And this doesn't just apply to your understanding or your practice of life. Of course it applies to your practice of meditation. 
And you know, it's been very hard sometimes to convince people to be kind and gentle in your meditation. Now even here, many questions were, yes, I've got some pain, should I really just push through it? Should I just discipline myself? And I have been a monk a long time, met many meditators, many teachers as well, and many students, and found out those people who really strive and push through things, basically they never get anywhere. They just get tense. It doesn't work. They get sick. And eventually they just pass away. Or disrobe. So instead of, you know, the course practice of what even the Buddha said in his first teaching, avoid those two extremes. Extremes which tire the body, that's atakilamatanu yoga, and indulging the five senses. And when the Buddha, um, as a, before he was the Buddha, when he got frustrated because he was just trying everything to get enlightened, sitting for long periods of time, not eating, not bathing, and you have those pictures of the Buddha, really thin, with the bones showing up. And when he decided that that was not getting him anywhere, that is when he decided, he remembered that time under the rose apple tree, the six or seven year old kid, just being bored stiff, watching his father do a ceremony, and deciding, well, you know, I don't know if we decided, but he just fell into a, a first jhana. And then he recollected this later on, and said, maybe that's the path to Bodhi, to enlightenment. And the insight came that that is the path to Bodhi. And so under the Bodhi tree, and the next thing he said, sorry, he said it's very difficult to get those jhanas, not impossible, but difficult, if your body is so weak and emaciated. You know, you've got sicknesses and stuff. So that's when he started to eat properly, to bathe and to sleep. And when his friends saw that, the first five friends, they abandoned him. They thought he's given up. You know, he's not practicing anymore. So often in spiritual life, we always uh, tend to get inspired or uplifted by the ascetic people. We think, wow, so tough to burn off three fingers. Oh, sorry, no, two fingers the three fingers left that uh, Korean monk which I told you about. Or there was one Japanese monk who I grew up with over in Thailand. And he went on a fast for 30 days. And that really impressed the Thai monks. A few years later, he disrobed and got married. What's going on there? Sometimes asceticism can be impressive for those who don't know what's going on. So this calm practice of letting go, being kind, and being gentle. Sometimes letting go is a long word, so sometimes I've done a loose translation, it's not that accurate, but you know, it works. Make peace, be kind, be gentle. 
and you see that written on T-shirts now. And they say, Ajahn Brahm. It's not Ajahn Brahm, it's the Buddha. So anyway, that becomes an important part of your meditation practice. Now, are you making peace? Are you letting go? Are you trying to attain something, get more stuff? More experiences? More things you can go back to Singapore and say, and they say, how was your retreat? Oh, I got second jhana, or I got third jhana. It can be very impressive to people that don't know what, what Buddhism is. You don't, and Ajahn Chah made a big point of this. We meditate to let go of things, not to get more things. But the most important part of those two is the kindness and the gentleness. So having just emphasized that in the beginning of this talk, that sometimes in Buddhism, actually not sometimes, very often, the Buddha used a simile of the lotus flower. It was very much a Buddhist simile, so much we have a lotus flower over there. So it's a fake one, but it's still a lotus in the front there. Why? Two reasons. One of the first reasons is a lotus flower. If somebody urinates on that lotus flower, all the urine just drips off and the, the lotus flower doesn't retain anything. If someone pours Chanel number no. 5, I, I don't know perfumes, I've been a monk for too long, but apparently that's still popular. Anyway, so, so people say. If someone pours Chanel number no. 5 over the lotus, it all falls off the lotus and the lotus does not retain any of that perfume. It still smells like a lotus as it did before. And that was one of the first wonderful similes of a lotus flower. Just, and I sometimes imagine myself to be a lotus flower. Someone shouts at me, curses me, says you're a stupid monk, you don't know the Dharma, you don't do this, you don't do that. To me it's like you're urinating over me. But I allow it to all fall off and afterwards I retain none of the stinky smell. At other times, people praise me. Oh, you're such a wonderful monk. If only all monks were like you. It's so great to be able to come to Jhana Grove and see you and listen to your teachings. Can I take a photograph of you? Can I have your signature? That's like pouring Chanel number no. 5 over me. Yeah, you pour it over me, but it all drips off. You don't keep anything. And that's even for you. You get your share of criticism and blame. Even the Buddha did. The Buddha said, it's not a human being on this planet Earth who doesn't get criticism. It's not a human being on this Earth who doesn't get praise. But the wise don't keep it. They're like the lotus flower. And that's one of the similes of the lotus I really love because it's practical. You all know what a lotus is. You've seen it happen. It means you can internalize this image so that when people do criticize you, blame you. I'm not going to say it's what you did or what you didn't do. That's irrelevant. It's just the criticism and praise are just really not, not required. It all falls off you. But the other simile of the lotus is uh, because I was uh, a person who went to every type of Buddhism as a young man, you always remembered that 
chant of the Tibetans of Vajrayana, Om Mani Padmi Hum. And of course, people often ask, what does that mean? And the Om and the Hum are just like Namo, it means like praise. The most important words in that little uh, mantra uh, Mani Padmi. And many of you will probably know that Mani means a jewel. And Padmi, like many of the Sri Lankans, they name their, their children Padma. It means lotus. And so what that phrase meant was like, like worship, praise to the jewel in the heart of the lotus. Padme was the locative case, so it's in the lotus. And what the heck does that mean? And why do they make a lot of fuss and bother about it? And that was where I developed this wonderful simile for meditation. What it is, how to meditate, what works and doesn't work. And imagine the lotus closed at night time. Because lotuses are always closed at night. And when the first light and warmth of the sun hits those outermost petals of the lotus, what happens? Those outer petals slowly open up. Now the outermost petals of a lotus, if you see one in the early morning or at night time, they are not fragrant, they're not very beautiful, they're quite harsh and coarse. A lot of time they're like corrugated iron, only small corrugations, but it's not even smooth. And if you see those outermost petals of the lotus, if you did not know what you were really looking at, many times you would probably consider, how can anything beauty or refined be in the middle of this? But when the light and the warmth of the sun hit that lotus, it opens up layer by layer, layer of petal by layer of petal. And the first layer of petals you know, is obviously quite thick, not so fragrant, it's got some color, much better than the outermost sheath of petals, but it's still not that beautiful. But it does allow the light and the warmth of the sun to hit the outermost, the first layer of petals. So they can open up too. So the warmth and light of the sun can reach the next layer of petals. And one by one in sequence, the petals open up. And the deeper you go into that lotus, the more beautiful, the more thin, profound are those petals, and the more fragrant they are as you go closer to their center. And every petal, one, this layer of petals opens up, it allows the warmth and the sun to hit the next layer so they can open up. And that is the way a lotus flower opens up. And the meaning of that is a great simile because you are that lotus. And sometimes when you come on these retreats, you look at yourself and you're just this really coarse, dirty, rough, outermost petals of the lotus you take to be your body and mind. And you think, it's hopeless. There can't be anything profound or beautiful or fragrant in this. You don't recognize you know, the truth of the lotus. 
that is you. So how can you open yourself up to go inside and to see what is really in the center of you or what you take to be you? And first of all, one of the great advantages of this simile, you don't go to another lotus to find out. The deepest petals are right here, right now, in this moment, inside of you. You'll hear me say in a few minutes that sometimes people would ask, well, you know, you've achieved a first jhana, how do you get into a second jhana? The second jhana is right in the center of the first jhana. The third jhana is right in the center of the second. You keep going in, never on to something else. That's why when someone says, how do I make progress? Ingress, not progress. Not regress, but ingress. It's a much better word. I don't know if it really is an English word, but you get the meaning. You never go on to the next experience. You go into this one, which you're experiencing now. Go deeper into it. And that's where you find the meditation deepening. Deepening is a good word. It goes deeper into the center. So that means you don't have to get some different object or do anything different. Find out what makes this object stay here and you find yourself zooming in. Again, I like the word zooming in because many people, at least I do anyway, when you've got an invitation to go somewhere, you go on you know, Google Maps and find out how do you get in there. And when you've got the big map, you know, you get the center where you want and press the zoom button. And you go deeper into it. And that's exactly what you're doing in this meditation. Zooming in to this body and mind to find out what's in the center of it. That's one of the reasons why I say, first of all, get yourself into a comfortable position. Because that's allowing, you know, this uh, outermost petals of the lotus you know, to be there and be able to be mindful of them. But mindfulness is not enough. You be mindful of things and they don't open up. You need the light and the warmth of the sun to open those petals. That's another part of this simile which I really love. What do you do to get deep in meditation? You're aware and kind. That's it. Don't do anything else. Don't move. Don't think. Don't make resolutions or willpower. Be mindful and be kind. Kindness is the opposite of willpower. You know that I've mentioned this to many people, and this, you know, I give uh, dedication and merits for this uh, explanation to my father when he said, Son, whatever happens to you in your life, wherever you go, please always remember the door of my house will always be open to you. I was a teenager, and he was about to die soon, but nevertheless, he gave me that beautiful expression of love. Unconditional love. Whatever happens to you in your life, however you turn out, you know, you have kids, you never know how they're going to turn out. <laughs> oh, 
There's one of the kids who came yesterday on Sunday over to Bodhinyana Monastery. And she was a mess. Big mess. She started off life really cute and very good, very obedient. Then she got into drugs and boyfriends. I think many of you can know the story. And then afterwards, and her, her life turned around. And now she's really a high achiever. And not only a high achiever, just a very lovely person. You never know how things are going to turn out. So that's one of the reasons when my father said that, unconditional love, door of my house. And his house, government-supported uh, flat, what they used to call council flats. About, you could probably put about three or four of those council flats in your cottage in which you live here at Jarna Grove. It was tiny. That's where I grew up. And as you said, you can go in there any time. <laughs> it wasn't opening, opening up his, the door to much. But of course, it never meant that. It took me a long time. I was a monk when I finally figured out what my father meant. He didn't mean the door of the house. He meant the door of his heart. And once I realized that, he was saying, son, the door of my heart will always be open to you, no matter how you turn out. And that meant so much. And it also became this expression of unconditional love. The door of your heart always open. It doesn't mean you accumulate things, because you know a door is to go in and also to go out. It means you don't control, you let things be under the power of unconditional love. And that is a type of warmth which opens up the mind in meditation. You're sitting here and say to your mind, mind, body, whatever happens, I will always be kind to you. I'd always love you, body, love you, mind. Whatever happens, even if you go wandering off all over the place. So when you have that type of kindness, plus that type of awareness, of course, petals start to open up. So when you meditate, you look at your body. The mindfulness for me usually means scanning my body, you know, from my toes to my head. And I never mentioned in those guided meditations that sometimes, you know, I become aware of any feelings in my brain. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have to overuse my brain. My poor old brain. You know, it gets exploited. Making decisions, not just for me, but for others as well. They ask my advice. Hey, come on, it's your, your life. You make your decisions. But no... I use my brain to try and be of assistance. And so my poor old brain gets exploited. But people told me, and it's true, that inside your brain you've got no nerve endings. So you can't feel any pleasure or pain actually inside the brain. So instead of feeling any pleasure or pain, I imagine it. I imagine my brain to be so tired sometimes exhausted. And then when I start the meditation, I imagine 
take you my poor brain. I've seen plenty of brains in my life. You know, I've seen, you know, going to autopsies. They're fascinating things to see. In those days in Thailand, we'd go and see an autopsy any time we wanted. And just as an aside, I remember going many times to Sirirat Hospital. That's just, you know, over the... It's the main hospital in Bangkok, just over the road. I'm oh, sorry, over the, the river from central Bangkok. And going in there, and remember getting there early one day, and going to the autopsy room where the, the doctors would actually cut up the bodies. And I could not believe it. I was arrived there early. And, you know, on the... As the places where the students sit as it you know, rises up towards the, the high windows, I looked at one of those high windows. On the window shelf, it looked like there was a human head there, you know, cut off at the, the neck. And I thought, oh, this must be a model or something made of plastic or something. When I went up there and you know, touched it, it actually was a real head, you know, with the skin and the bones and being cut off at the neck. Many of you would freak out. <laughs> but I, I actually laughed. I thought, that's really cool. <laughs> I was a weird monk. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> having seen brains many times, you understand it's very small. Such a small thing can cause so much trouble. <laughs> but anyway, I imagine my brain in this meditation. Just imagine it. And I imagine taking it out of the skull and putting it in a little basket, a little wicker basket with a nice um, cushion underneath and a little blanket and a pillow. <laughs> and I said, Brain, you deserve a rest. And yeah, that was very, very um, helpful. If you are a doctor and just know how stupid that is, it may be not work, but if you imagine it, you give your brain a break. So you can put it aside, you don't have to think for the period of the meditation. You don't need thinking. So instead, you just look at this lotus, and the first part of the lotus is your body. You know, sometimes you see people's bodies, sometimes they're old, sometimes they're young, you can see that sometimes they've got so much faith, they're sitting there really straight-backed. And sometimes... You can tell a lot by a people's body, but nowhere near enough. Because inside these hopeless bodies, that's one of the reasons why I can't... I told a simile before, but that fellow who came here, an Australian, he had curly hair, wearing a t-shirt, shorts, and, and uh, thongs, thong sandals. Typical Australian national dress. And because he was not wearing very much, he had lots of tattoos. You can see all the tattoos on his body. A really rough guy. And I did, as I said before, I thought he actually mistook this place for Carnet Prison Farm up the road. You know the Bodhinyana Monastery has a wall, the prison farm doesn't. So sometimes people do get confused. <laughs> and it has happened that some Thai people looking for the monastery have gone to Karnat Prison Farm and asked, are there any monks in here? <laughs> no! <laughs> monks don't go to jail. 
ว่าก็อย่าเป็นหรอกแต่อะไรก็ได้ทั้งเดี๋ยวบ้านคุณเซ็นต์ไปเจอในไทยแลนด์ไม่ถูกต้องไม่ทำอะไรผิดพลาดคนก็เจอเขาไปไปเจอเขาสองปีแล้วเขาจับคุมทปซิตี้มูนีและเขาบอกว่าเป็นปีที่ดีที่สุดของชีวิตจริงๆเขามีห้องนอนและเขามีการกินอาหารที่ดีและไม่มีใครตามหาเขาในสองปีเขาสามารถสื่อสารกับการอ่านหนังสือทำการเทศนาเขามีความสุขที่ดีที่สุดถ้าใครจะไปที่ระเบียบ Actually, it's not as nice in the uh, Singapore jails. I've been in there to talk to the prisoners, but anyway, uh, so this on the uh, so he was actually registered for one of these retreats, and so I said, "I'm sorry, I just judged you." But he was the one who really surprised me. On the outside, it was the most unlikely container for these deep meditations. His outermost petals of his lotus were really rough, but when he came for his interview, and just, he blew my mind. I was so surprised, happily surprised, that he did. A, he got into a jhana, and I use that because you cannot judge the innermost petals of you from what's on the outside. So you relax. This is the care of your body. Relax everything. Doesn't matter how long it takes. Take your brain out if it thinks too much. And uh, metaphorically, I don't mean do a lobotomy. Just take it out, put it in a nice care for it. Putting it in a nice little basket with lovely cushions and blankets and stuff. That was important because it just showed I cared for my body. And when you care for your body and you sit here, often it disappears. You go inside of your body. That becomes the outermost petal of the lotus. Goes to the one of the innermost petals of the lotus. You don't go to your breath yet. When I let go of my body through kindness and awareness, and it gets so relaxed, it's not doing anything. So of course you go inside. The next thing which I do these days is I see peace. A simple thing. The reason I say peace because. A lot of time, people don't know what their mind is. They have ideas and fantasies about the mind, but what it actually is. Right now, every one of you, how peaceful are you? You don't have to give an answer, but you know that you have to look at the thing called the mind. Just like flowers and trees and bushes are what lives in the garden. Peace doesn't live in your body; it lives in your mind. So it's a way of getting in contact with the mind. And when you sort of start looking at peace, it's like looking at one of the outermost petals. Sorry, it is outermost petals, but it's inside the sheath. And when you become aware of peace long enough, then you must—you can't avoid it. Start to become aware of silence. Peace actually does mean the present moment, because you can't find peace in the future. The future is way too uncertain. And the past, again, I don't know why it is, but when people recall the past, 
too often they recall all the bad parts of the past. All the times they were hurt, abused, mistreated, not valued. And recording the past often creates so much negativity. I don't know if you can recall the past and all the wonderful things which happened to you. And forget the bad things. It just, it's like you're looking this way, seeing all the bad things, and someone takes your head and pushes it around the other side so you can see all the beautiful things. Please focus on the flowers in the garden, not the weeds. And so, when you focus on that positive, you get the beautiful petals of peace. You're aware of them and you're kind to them. You don't try and develop them or change them or get rid of the bad stuff and keep the good stuff. You care. You don't try and choose and get rid and develop and discipline and tell off. I mentioned already that was one of my big problems. Restlessness and sloth and torpor. Why? Why can't I just tell my mind to watch the breath? Because that wasn't a very kind thing to do. Even last night, someone, where is he? He said, have a good night. And I told him, well, look, I don't follow orders. And he said, okay, have a good night if you wish. That's much better. To improve upon that, you say, have a good night or a bad night, whatever, but the door of my heart's always open to you. That's much better. Because sometimes you do have a bad night. Sometimes people send you off on this retreat and you feel, they say, have a wonderful retreat. And sometimes you feel sort of almost like you're disappointing them if you don't have a, a good retreat. So you try really hard to impress the people who sponsored you to come here. And if it doesn't work, you feel just, oh, guilty. It's amazing how people have so many guilt trips. And they feel embarrassed, they feel responsible. Please don't do that. If you have a wonderful retreat today, great. If you have a terrible retreat today, great. It's one of the reasons why the many years ago there was a lady who was on this retreat and she was having such a difficult time. And she came to see me in the interview and said, I really feel miserable, I think I want to leave the retreat. And I said, why do you feel? Well, I just feel miserable. I look at everybody else in this retreat and they're sitting there nice and straight and they're smiling and I'm miserable. It really, she always said, pisses me off to see all these happy people when I'm miserable. <laughs> and then I asked her to wait for a few moments and I went into the office, turned on the computer and I wrote the first grumpy license on a... <laughs> She's still got it, apparently. And the grumpy license, it was on no monastery letterhead, and I found some nice gothic script to write it on. And then this grumpy license grants to Veronica, was her name, permission to be grumpy for any reason or no reason at all for the rest of your life until the coming of Maitreya Buddha signed your teacher, Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> and then I formally presented it to her. 
Look, you need a license to drive a car, you need a license to get married, you need a license for this and a license for that. Why not having a license to be grumpy? And as soon as I gave that to her, her, her grumpy license, oh, she started laughing. That was the end of her grumpiness, because now she was allowed to be grumpy. You're allowed to be sick. You're allowed to die. You're allowed to be sleepy. And if anyone has lots of sloth and torpor, I will give you a sloth and torpor license. This license allows somebody to be tired and sleepy at any time for whatever reason for the rest of your existence in China Grove, signed the teacher Ajahn Brahm. So you don't have to fight it anyway, you don't have to feel guilty. So that type of kindness, first of all it relaxes your body and it brings you peace. Just peace, that's all. Not enlightenment, not limitless, not delightful breaths, just peace. And when life becomes peaceful, there's nothing much to think about. There's a delight in peace, and that delight is very satisfying. It's like you don't need anything more. So you can hang out with your grumpiness when you're not trying to change it. You can stay with peace and it becomes silent. There's nothing to say. And quite often, again I mentioned last night, it's the most beautiful sound in the world, silence. And there's many places in this world, not this afternoon, because we're having the Pawarana ceremony in the main hall at Bodhinyana. But if you don't know already, each one of you, especially in the afternoon, if you have nothing, in, if you don't mind walking to Bodhinyana Monastery, try meditating in the hall in Bodhinyana Monastery in the afternoon. There are many people who often say that's one of the most powerful peaceful places to meditate they've ever been in. It's true. Someone brought in a Feng Shui master when I think it was in Singapore or somewhere. And they went into that hall and they said this is some of the strongest Feng Shui they've ever seen in their life. An Australian guy who built the main concrete water tanks at Bodhinyana Monastery. He's an incredibly strong fellow. You know, they call him a grano worker, he did it all by himself. Moving that much concrete, you know, up ramps which he built himself, oh, that was really tough. And when he finished those concrete tanks, he said, Brahm, can I have a look at your church? <laughs> that was a meditation hall. And he was just like what they call a rough diamond. Very kind, a hard worker, totally trustworthy. So I took him to the main hall, not that far distance. He had his big boots on. Now he mixes concrete all day. And so just, he wanted to take his boots off. I said, don't take the boots off. Just put your head inside the second door. And then he put his head through the second door. Beforehand he was talking so much. But once his head went inside that hall, 
it went silent. That's one of those times you'll always remember. It quieted his thoughts down so much he couldn't speak. I was next to him, let him be in there for about three or four minutes. And then he brought his head out and he said, This is good, ain't it, Brahm? <laughs> he actually felt something in there, a really good spiritual moment for him, even though it's as really rough as a diamond uh, concrete worker. So when you feel that silence, it's delightful. You become a connoisseur of silence. So when you meet it, it's like your petals open up a little bit more. All you need is kindness and mindfulness, nothing more. And when you're kind and mind, uh, mindful to the silence, it stays with you. Have you ever, have you ever a pet, like a little dog or a cat at home? Sometimes these animals, they just come to you. They jump over the fence or you see them in the morning, they're looking for a home, they're looking for a little bit of kindness. And if you are kind to them, they will stay forever. And they'll always give you so much happiness. That's one of the reasons why that, you know, you stay here for a while and you get to know the little kangaroos and the joes, you even give them names. I don't think they recognize the names. <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, we have this ability as human beings of being kind. And these animals will never harm you. And they will always be with you. Give you lots of more joy. And so use the pet of silence. Wonderful little pet to have as your one of your closest buddies. You're kind to that silence, and it, it loves you back, and it stays with you. But if you do have a pet like a bird, don't always keep the cage closed. Because what happens if you put a bird in a cage with the, the door locked? One day, you'll forget or something will happen, and the cage door is open, and that bird will fly away and never come back. You don't need to lock the cage door, or even keep it closed. Just keep that cage comfortable, really good food, and of course that bird will love that cage. This is its home. You don't have to lock it in. It might fly out for a day or two, but then it'll always come back again. That's actually how we keep things still, not by locking them up, not by telling them what to do. There was one of the ladies from the Buddhist Fellowship years ago. Uh, she was actually sponsored by the Buddhist Fellowship to go to London to learn, I think, some psychology or counseling course. Forget who she was now. But when she came here, either on the way there or on the way back, I can't remember which, she asked to stay, stay a couple of weeks at Bodhinyana Monastery in the ladies' quarters. And she was doing her meditation. She came for an interview there with me, complaining about restlessness. So her mind kept on going all over the place. How do I solve that? And that's when I told her 
about the story of this mother in Perth who had about a five-year-old son and one day the son had an argument with his mummy and at the end of the argument the son said Mummy, I don't love you anymore I'm leaving home five-year-old what would you do? I've got... <laughs> I've got, I've got to, you know, if I had a hat, take my hat off to this woman. Her wisdom, her emotional intelligence was brilliant. You want to leave home? Yes, mummy. Okay, I'll help you pack. I'm sure many mothers <laughs> might think that but never have the guts to do it. So she helped pack the little bag for this little five-year-old and said, well, you know, life is a long journey, so we have to have something to eat, so I'll make a nice sandwich for you. Made the kid's favourite sandwich, and then sent him off at the front door of the house. Bye-bye, son, have a nice life. Don't forget to write. <laughs> and there the son, first time in his life, five years old, with a bag in one hand and a brown paper bag with a sandwich in the other, and I walked down to the end of the garden path, opened the garden gate, turned left, and went into his life. First time he'd left home. And the mother never tried to stop him at all, but actually helped him. What do you think happened? That five-year-old got about, I don't know, 50 metres, 100 metres down the road, and then felt terribly homesick. <laughs> turned around <laughs> and came back through the garden gate. The mother was still standing there. Welcome home, darling. That was great emotional intelligence. So when I was saying that, this Singaporean um, brilliant counsellor, she was actually rolling on the floor in front of me in the, diner, in the dining room, you know where we have our lunch? Holding her belly, laughing her head off. And I, I'm very rare to see a Singaporean do that. I've never seen you do that, Eileen. <laughs> <laughs> or you, PJ. And I said, so what's going on? She said, you never believe this. I did the same. That she said that when she was young, an argument with her mum. Mum, I've had enough, I'm leaving home. And the mum did the same, or similar. Packed her bag, but she never gave her a sandwich. She said, my mum gave me a $20 note, find your own lunch. And she waved me off, it's in one of the flats, the HDB, one of the HDB flats, you know, got into the, the lift. She managed to reach high enough to get the, I oh know, for the first one, the, the ground floor. Bye-bye, Mum. Bye-bye, darling. Have a wonderful life. And the door closed. And she got homesick by the time the lift reached the bottom floor the ground floor and so she pressed the floor where she lived went straight back up again and the mum was there welcome back darling and she said that happened to me no joke and that's why she was laughing, laughing so much that's how you treat your mind it wants to go off somewhere stupid okay pack its bag give it a $20 note or sandwich or whatever you can afford bye bye have a wonderful time mind and the psychology of that is your mind realises you really love it. You're caring for it. 
What mind will want to go too far away from someone like that? And I realized my restlessness as a young monk was always because I didn't love my mind. I didn't have enough kindness towards it. And once I trusted my mind, you want to go somewhere? Off you go. Come back again whenever you want. You know, some, some, oh, I've got this terrible, stupid mind which always thinks jokes. Glad to get rid of you, mind. Off you go. <laughs> and so I'd, I'd wish it well. And it never wanted to move, leave. And that's actually how you overcome restlessness, with a beautiful kindness. Kindness and mindfulness go so much together. You may know that many years ago I coined the term kindfulness. Putting those two together. That was my term, kindfulness. Coined it in Hong Kong one time. So when we have that kindfulness, then we're kindful to the silence. And then you're silent, and right in the middle of silence, you will find your breath comes to you. The breath just appears. These days, 100% honest, I never go looking for my breath. I prepare the ground. The breath is one of the inner petals. So I just make sure I prepare with, um, what's saying, peace, present moment awareness, silence. And once you get to the silence petals, they open up and you have your breathing. It comes to me, I never go looking for it. And there's this other really good meditator who's a psychologist told me, he said, you know, when I tried that, the breath is always much more peaceful and easier to watch when I allow it to come to me rather than going chasing it and holding it. And it's so true. So then you're going into the innermost pet, uh, one of the inner petals of breath. Why the breath? It's because when everything else gets very peaceful and still, that's the one thing which is still moving. Of course, you can be aware of your heart, but always, I say, try and move away from the heart and be aware of the breath. The reason is if you calm the heart down so that doesn't move, <laughs> then you are in big trouble. <laughs> so you go in the breath. And when you do that, the breath actually does appear to be a beautiful petal. It's an inner petal. If you go holding the breath, it doesn't appear nice. If you let the breath come to you, it always appears nice. It has a delightful feeling to it. The pity sukha is almost there from the beginning. And of course, you just watch it. You don't do anything. And that is, after a while, just you see the whole of the breath, not just breathing in, breathing out. The very beginning of an in-breath right at the end of the in-breath. And a beautiful pause between breaths. And then the out-breath begins. See the whole of the out-breath from beginning to end. You don't do this to try and tick a box. Yeah, I've done that now, what do I do next? It's a natural process. 
It just happens. Whether you read it before or you haven't read it before, the mindfulness gets more aware, and so does the care. You're caring for this breath because it's beautiful to watch. Sometimes, you know, because I've been a monk for all these years, I've never had a, a baby. So, but I've seen like mothers holding their baby, and sometimes they show their baby to me for a blessing. Oh, isn't it beautiful? Mothers always think their baby is the most beautiful thing in the world. And sometimes, in the Thai tradition, they would give the baby to me to sit on my lap for a, for a couple of minutes, almost like as a blessing. And honestly, I can't get rid of that baby quick enough. <laughs> and I always use my mind, please don't poo, please don't poo. Because <laughs> the smell would get on my robe. <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyway, what I'm noticing, if it's your baby, there's always an extra beauty to it. If it's your breath, and you love it, you care for it, of course it's incredibly beautiful. And that means you're just watching this beautiful breath, my little baby. My little baby breath going in, little darling breath going out. You can watch it for a long time without any interruption. And then what happens though? Actually it is interrupted. Because see the delightful breath, it gets more and more delightful. And then eventually you go inside the breath. Those are where the lights come up, the nimitters. They come up naturally, you can't avoid them. And when they do come up, what do you do? Nothing. Just be mindful and care. Caring is not doing anything except, you know, just how can I, I give you freedom, happiness, joy? So you care for those little lights which come up in the mind. First of all, tiny lights, poor little lights. They're probably more afraid of you than you are of them, metaphorically speaking. And when you care for them, ah, a little limiter. If you get excited or afraid, that means you're a control freak. You know, you think you've done it, or they'll take you over. So, shh, be quiet. Just enjoy these beautiful lights which come and visit you. You're going deeper into the lotus. The deeper you go, the more profound it becomes. It's just the nature of things. Don't be concerned about what color it is. Don't be concerned about its shape. Don't be concerned about anything. Ah, it's a little nimitta. A little nimitta coming for the first time. Thank you for visiting, little limiter. You don't get excited or try and control it or own it or take photographs of it like I tried to take a photograph of the Himalaya mountains. <laughs> then you lose it. So it's like the breath layer of petals, a delightful breath layer of petals is opening up. And inside is this beautiful light. Sometimes, I say this because it's a common question, Yes, I can see the beautiful light, but I can also see the petals. Which one should I watch? Shh. Let your mind decide what it wants to watch. If you are peaceful and let go enough and kind enough, the layer of petals called the breath opens up fully to reveal the light, the nimitta, 
in its fullness as well. That's just what happens. But if it's not the right time, then those little layer of petals called the breath will close up again. You've had a glimpse, but you're not quite ready yet. That's still wonderful. But anyway, you don't do anything. Keep being kind and aware. That's all you do, kindfulness. And then eventually those breath petals will open up totally. See this beautiful light. Please don't get excited. Wow! <laughs> I've got to tell my friends. Yeah, I've got a nimiter. You've got a nimiter? <laughs> and don't get afraid either. Fear comes up. You know why fear comes up? It's because this is challenging your idea of a self, of who you are, being in control of your mind. You can't control these limiters. They're even actually stronger than you are. Much more powerful. So you can't control it. Just let it be and enjoy. Perfectly safe. Oh, I should mention that the deep meditations, there is a danger, which I should warn you of. And the danger of deep meditation is that you might lose all your hair. The hair falls out, it doesn't fall out, you shave it off. <laughs> you want to renounce because this is beautiful stuff. So anyway, you're being kind and being aware and you see limitless. Then what do you do? To get to the next layer, the next layer of petals lies right inside. You just allow those limitless to stabilize, to strengthen. They can be so incredibly powerful. That's why you get afraid, because you can't control them. Of course you can't. You're disappearing. You're vanishing. Who you think you are is bye-bye. Instead, what you're experiencing is the beauty of the mind. Let it be. And right in the center of the nimitus, right inside, that is where you see the first jhana. It's right in the middle of the nimitta. So sometimes people feel they're being sucked in, going through a tunnel to this beautiful thing at the end, all that nimitta just enveloping you. But you're going into the center of it. Don't do anything, just be kind. For the layer of petals has opened up, and you get into this incredible layer of petals, so amazingly fragrant, profound, and beautiful, like you've never seen before. And that becomes a jhana. In those places, you can't do anything. You can't make any choices. I've had enough, or I'm going to go deeper. All those thoughts just don't occur anymore. Your mind is far too peaceful. But if you're lucky, that layer of petals... I say lucky, what does that mean? If you had enough letting go when you get into these jhanas, you just keep carrying on and the layer of petals will open up. The first jhana in the center of the first jhana, you see the second jhana. You know sometimes you think you understand what is profound and what is incredibly beautiful and blissful. It's one of the things like you, you feel like you've scaled Mount Everest and on the top of Mount Everest you see there's another mountain even more high, more beautiful, which you couldn't see before. You just go into a second town. And then just the mind just 
goes into a third jhana, goes into a fourth jhana. And you keep going on as the lotus opens up more and more and more. Till eventually it opens up so much that you can see the jewel in the very heart of the lotus, the center of the lotus, which is your body and mind, which bears your name, sitting listening to me right now. In the center of that we call the jewel in the heart of the lotus. You know what's there? What's in the center? I could tell you, would you believe me? Of course not. There is. So it's hardly worth me telling you, is it, if you won't believe me? So let's finish off now. <laughs> it's nine o'clock. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll say the solution. The jewel in the heart of the lotus. And of course, I'll say the, the anecdote more fully later on. Ajahn Shah, catching me after I came out of a really good meditation, tried to enlighten me, asked Bama Wangso, why? In Thai. Bama Wangso, why? I said, I don't know. He just laughed. He never ever scolded me. He just thought Western monks were so funny. <laughs> they had all these degrees, but didn't know anything. <laughs> But then he screwed up his face again and said, Bama Wangsa, I'll tell you the answer. I was really excited. <laughs> Teach a personal sort of uh, lesson, the answer to the question, why? And he said, the answer is, my me arai. Do you understand? <laughs> That's Thai. He said, there is nothing, there is nothing. And then he looked at me, Rama Wangso, do you understand? I said, yes. He said, no you don't. <laughs> and he walked away. But that's the answer also to what's in the heart of the lotus. There's nothing, there's nothing. You understand? No, you don't. <laughs> okay. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.